I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey folks, welcome to another webinar edition with Rhea Wong Consulting. Today, I have my two buds, special friends, one's a repeat uh, on the webinar, and actually both of you are repeat podcast guests, but Kashana Palmer and Brooke Richie Babbage. I don't know why I just said Brooke Richie Babbage. Brooke Richie Babbage, it's been a long week, y'all. But welcome to both of them. Today, we're going to talk about all of the things. Welcome, ladies. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Welcome, everyone. Yeah, no, so excited. It's going to be so fun. So let's start with you, Kashana. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what, what, you're running like multiple companies, right? I am. I am. And it is an interesting time. Um, So my name is Kashana Palmer. I um, run Kashana Co. We are a uh, social impact family of brands. And um, underneath the Kashana and Co umbrella, um, I have a management and leadership learning company. We're going to be relaunching a new name this summer, which is going to be amazing. Um, we also have a lifestyle brand, the Social Good Life, where we sell apparel, office, and home goods. And I'm the founder of the Rooted Collaborative, which is a global community for women of color fundraisers. So, a lot going on you know, podcast that's getting ready to launch. There's a lot of projects. So I am the creative that um, lives for like new things. And as we'll be talking today, have had to learn how to prioritize and to properly to execute against all these big ideas. Yeah. Hashtag hustle life. Brooke, you are also a former nonprofit executive director. Kashana, you and I have uh, lived that nonprofit life. Brooke, you're now running your own thing. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's actually really um, great to hear, Kashana, to hear you just talk about, you love all things creative and building. Um, I was recently going through a sort of why exercise, just sort of revisiting, you know, why do we do what we do? And particularly in the midst of all the uncertainty and chaos, sort of recentering. And just this idea of being a builder and a creator um, of institutions has just been a through line in my life. Um, I was an executive director. I was also a practicing attorney here in New York City. What I do now is two things. I am the director of network initiatives at a foundation here in New York City called the Robert Sterling Clark Foundation. And uh, basically under that hat, I run something called the Sterling Network, which is a network of 60 plus systems leaders that come together four times a year to think about and work together on um, improving economic justice for the city. It's cross sector, it's a lot of fun. Um, and then I also do grant making in the network space. So identify fledgling um, networks, people and groups that are interested in using networks to, to do systems change and, and support that. And then in my other hat, I run my company, uh, which is Burkucci Babbage, I guess Inc. Um, but we're not actually incorporated, so <laughs> can't really say that. Um, but under that hat, I provide consulting and leadership coaching, particularly for, um, for all small and mid- mid-sized nonprofits. But my, my happy place and my sweet spot are social entrepreneurs, people, founders, people who are in the process of building an institution to support their vision. And I help them through organizational design and strategic planning work. And then I also, through Burkachi Babbage, um, run an a number of online initiatives, the Launch Lab, which focuses on helping early stage initiatives with things like fundraising, leadership development, board development, infrastructure building, um, and things like that. 
Oh my God. I'm tired. Just listening to you ladies. Well, all I do. Uh, That's hard work if you're happy, if you love what you do. <laughs> I know. And both of you are also moms. So you're like living that homeschool life. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, and then just to recap for folks who don't know, I have Rhea Wong Consulting, which is my consulting arm for nonprofits, largely fundraising and strategy. And I have a podcast. I now have a webinar series and recently announced uh, I have a network for Asian American women called Asian Boss Ladies. So, you know, I'm busy. I'm busy. Yeah, you're, you're busy yourself. <laughs> All right. So, ladies, I want to talk a little bit about the transition from being I'm trying not to be derogatory here, but I can't think of any other word other than wage slave, uh, <laughs> an employee to owning your own business. Why did you take that step? And what was the scariest part about that for you? Uh, Brooke, let's start with you. And let's just like chop it up. I mean, that's Friday morning. Yeah, we can bounce back and forth between yeah. the us because we've all, we've all done that. Um, so why did I make the change? I mean, I think a lot of it um, for me on my personal journey had to do with where I was in the life course, uh, life cycle of the organization that I started and running. Um, I had been doing that pretty much head down, you know, top speed for more than 12 years. And um, the organization had reached a point, really an inflection moment in its growth. And it was time for me to step down. And so it was both a step into doing something on my own and stepped out of the role of executive director and both of those were intentional. Um, I guess the scariest thing, well, before I, I say that, one thing I'll say is I definitely felt like when I started my organization, it was a similar transition. And so even though this time I didn't step away from being an executive director to start a new institution, sort of incorporated institution, starting anything, um, starting any new journey I think brings up all of these feelings that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, it may be an institution, an organization, a, a company, a, a collective. Um, but the starting—I um, I happen to like that phase, but it it can be tough. I guess I want—I will say—and this is just me—the only thing that felt scary to me was not having a title, if that makes any sense. Mm. Um, you know, for six years I was an attorney here in the city. I loved doing it and that was my title. So when I walked into a room, I could say, great to meet you, I'm an attorney. You know, I do social justice law. For 12 years, I was an executive director. I could walk into a room and say, I'm the executive director of the Resilience Advocacy Project. And so it was actually a little scary, you know, at 40 to say, but what am I gonna tell people I do? <laughs> um, and that idea of, of being tied to what we do, um, isn't real, we aren't tied to what we do and I've obviously been fine, but I think that was a little bit, um, I thought a lot about it when I first stepped away. Yeah. That's so awesome, Brooke, because I feel like the who am I part like showed up so late. So I'm turning 41 next week. And I think around 35, I was kind of like, uh, I don't have goal, dreams, passions, <laughs> do I have hobbies? Like, do you know what I know how to do really well? Work. You know, like, money. My working is real good. Okay. <laughs> it, is, it is fantastical. Um, and so like you, I, you know, I had uh for a really long time, I had my identity was really wrapped in what I did. And the first time I was ever laid off um was the first time I'd ever been laid off since I started working at 14. 
And I was that teenager that was like, heck yeah, for my own paycheck. Like I was out in, in straight A's and involved in everything in school because the independence was such a big deal for me um, and being able to call something my own. And so when I started Kashana & Co in its first early iteration in 2009, that was like my mad money. I was married at the time. You know, I had a small child. Um, she was still a toddler. And we had just bought, built our first home in the South. And I was like, just in case, you know, and, and the just in case became my reality. So that's terrible. Different podcast, Ray, different podcast, bro. Um, but uh, I still didn't know how to disaggregate, like separate myself from being an employee. And so I jumped into the next thing and I went into the next thing, each a, a more poor fit than the, the previous uh, role because I had gotten to a place financially in my in position-wise in my career that making a different decision and doing something differently just didn't even compute in my mind. I was like the kid looking over the edges of the pool, you know, not wanting to jump, you know, I was like, mm -mm, I'm not even going to tell them. So when I uh, left my last organization in 2016, I was like, something has to give. Like, I can't keep doing this again. Like, this doesn't make any sense. And so at the time I did what I thought I should do, which is become a fundraising consultant. I had been in fundraising, branding and marketing my whole career. It made sense. I found out really early, I really don't like it. And so, and I'm not that great at it. I'm, I'm actually an awesome coach now, but it is lumps like hard one around being a coach and facilitator. And I really had to get in the lab, learn from doing, thankfully my earlier clients, um, Rio was one of them, um, were so gracious as I was getting my, my sea legs. And so now I really have that part down. But what, to your point, Brooke, um, was the hardest thing to wrap my mind around is the, who am I and what do I do? I got a text message from a friend yesterday, y'all, that, that she said, how's your entrepreneurial stuff going? And I was like, oh Lord, I still haven't hit it yet. <laughs> but, you know, I think both of you bring up a really good point, which is something I thought about too. Like for me, the hardest part of starting something new was a stepping away from the, you know, being the executive director and having a very clear path and then be just like starting and being like, oh, I'm going to have to suck at something. Like I'm going to have to fail at something and like not be good at something. And that is terrifying, especially, you know, at your 30s and 40s, right? Because you've built up this whole professional reputation of like, I got it together. I know how to do it. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, then this whole other thing. Does that resonate with you guys? Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think especially when um, just knowing what I know about you, Rhea, and, and hearing your life story and, and poking around in the internet and learning so much more about you, uh, Kishana, I think that you get to a point in your career where your expertise in a room is part of your brand. Mm -hmm. uh, and the idea, you know, I started off in my early 20s there's something about being the lawyer in the room. People look to you and are like, oh, you must have answers. And so even if you don't, you have this cloak of, um, you know, I can ask a lot of questions under the sort of cloak of, oh, but don't worry, I've got this. And I feel similarly to being an executive director that people, um, that you, you, people look to you to be an expert. And even if, and Rhea, you and I talked about this on the podcast we did together, even if in your head, there's a huge gap <laughs> between what people see and what you actually know, mm -hmm. um, what people see can give, can buy you a lot of leeway. And that's gone when you, when you're starting something new, you yeah. just have to say, I don't know, I'm not the expert. Mm -hmm. uh, be okay with that. Or you won't, 
or you won't grow. Mm-hmm. Kachana, you are the queen of starting stuff. I'm just curious, you know, for the folks listening out there, how did they even get started? Like, where did you start? Did you start like reading lots of books? Did you go to business school? Did you listen uh-huh. to podcasts? Like what, what was the, yeah. how did you know what to do? I didn't know what to do. Okay. The Lord, <laughs> that's what I would say. Um, so I did go to business school. Um, I got my MBA, but really early I got, I finished uh, my MBA program when I was 21. And so I didn't know a thing. I mean, come on. Hey, come through with the smarts. I also didn't know a thing about life. I just want you to know, you don't know nothing about 21 unless you raised yourself <laughs> or raised by wolves. I didn't think they okay. let people go to business school until they were like 30. <laughs> I know. Okay. okay so Sean is a, she's an overachiever. Now, I am an overachiever. Oh my gosh. So quick sidebar. So I went to Bentley University, used to be Bentley College. And the, the year that I started, they started a five-year hybrid BS MBA program that you had to apply for as a freshman. You had to hit like a 98 average, it was basically straight A's your first year. And then you were like conditionally accepted. So I did my first year of my MBA program as a senior. And then um, I got a scholarship to complete my MBA program, basically my fifth year, if you will. So I had time to do investment banking, internships. I studied abroad, did all stuff. Hilariously, grad school was an exercise in being picked last for kick for kickball, okay? <laughs> no one wants the 21-year-old who has not lived, all right? <laughs> no one's on that team. And I would go into to my team meetings, my cohort meetings, and they'd be like, oh, you. Yeah, but the thing is at 21, you think you know everything. That's I thought thing. I knew all the things. Okay. Right, of course. You keep telling me that I did not know. Right. 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 So, <laughs> but I but I live. But so yeah, yes to schooling. But also I am one of those folks that when I don't know it, um, I, I'm an experiential learner. So I will get in there and figure it out. But I also will get the books, the training, the mentor. Like I will seek. Um, and I really approach my work and my life with a beginner's mind so much so that last year in 2019, I was on the road. Um, I probably spoke last year, like almost 40 times, um, at conferences or the keynote or the session leader uh, for trainings. And about October last year, I said, you know, in 2020, I'm not going to book myself that much because I really want to get in the lab and do more facilitations and trainings and full format multi-day so that I can really make sure that that particular skill I have is sharp. Mm-hmm. And that's what I booked. Mm-hmm. And so that that's just like my way. Um, but it's all the things, Rhea. And I am literally like, in my mind, I'm a fantastic artiste, you know? I can draw, I can paint, I can design. My home is beautiful, so I can actually interior design. But that creativity and like sort of like really just pushed me, but it is backed by the, the nerdiest part of my spirit, which is all the schooling and learning and digging in um, in order to be able to get something. But okay, let's talk about this for a second because I, yeah. I feel that so hard. When I was the 26-year-old ED, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to read every book and go to every webinar and teach myself how to do this thing. And I think there's a thing that is real called procrastinate learning where you're like, oh, if I just like read one more book, I don't actually have to risk putting it out there. Let's talk about procrastinate yes. learning for a second. Oh How my, do you know? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, we've right all been there. We've all been there. I'm going to quote you. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Because you're like, oh, that, that one more webinar, that one more course, that one more book will teach me oh. everything I need. But Rhea, that's about the fear that you asked about. That's yeah. how it can show up, right? That 
that it isn't, it doesn't always manifest itself as, you know, oh my God, I can't do this. And I'm staying up at night terrified. Sometimes you feel like you're charging ahead. You have plans, you're executing, you're building, you're building relationships, you're learning, you're growing, you're doing, you're doing all the things. And you realize that, you know, when you look back on a month, you haven't actually moved anywhere. Yeah, right. And see that happening, probably you are, you are doing whatever, everyone has different versions of procrastinating learning, but that's, that's just another manifestation of fear that when yeah. I step out of the role of learner into the role of doer, that's when people will be able to say, oh, you don't actually know. This. <laughs> maybe, or maybe you do. And, right. and so really, I think pushing through the procrastinating learning, and you and I have talked a lot about this, is about sitting both with being an active learner and, and having a beginner's mind and never losing that. And also just realizing that every single person who has ever built anything or tried anything new or created anything has gotten drafts wrong. Mm -hmm. And just really accepting that that isn't, that that's okay. Not just saying, oh, we all say that's okay, but really accepting that, I think mm -hmm. is the key to pushing through procrastinating learning. Yeah. I love it. And I think what's happening. <laughs> And Brooke, something that you said just kind of struck this point for me. So growing up, my dad would always ask me, did I do my best? And he would always tell me like, you are your only competition. And so I very rarely feel competitive. And when I feel that like competitive or like jealous spirit or whatever, I always have to kind of dig in like what else is happening with me. But one of the things that I really struggled with my first couple of years um, full time. So, you know, 2016, 2018 was... I knew I was busy. Like you could do busy work and not get a darn thing done to your point. Mm -hmm. But I also knew I was doing C work. And so to know me is to understand that when I'm pushing head pedal to the metal, y'all better keep up. So anybody who has worked with me as a partner or who has been on my teams over the years, they're like, how did y'all get that done? Cause we get it done. We get busy. And that is literally, but I knew that because my A, like when I'm like really hitting it out the park is ridiculous that my C looks like a lot of people's A. The problem is I'm getting all these accolades. Kashana, you're doing such a good job. When I know I'm BSing, y'all. Well, and yeah. the problem with that, what's really pernicious about that is getting praise when you know you're doing C work mm. undermines your confidence, right? It's people think that the thing that matters, not everybody thinks this, but often we talk about praise as if that's the end goal but it isn't. The end goal is doing the A work. Mm -hmm. And I am not infrequently in groups where people will look and be like, you exhaust me, <laughs> right? The pace of your work, <laughs> like the, the, the speed, just the, you know, the ferocity with which you do work. I mean, I happen to like that pace. <laughs> um, I'm a total hustler, but it's also that, that staving off the fear, pushing through the procrastinate learning only really works if I can look and feel like I'm doing an A. Because then if it isn't the best, right? If it, if it doesn't land right, then that insecurity isn't as bad, right? Because then you can look and say, oh, I just have something to learn. Okay, well, we all have something to learn. Um, but it's the thing that people don't realize is if you are pushing, really pushing and working and doing what you know is your best, then it's actually a little less scary to try. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask uh, two more questions and I'll open it up to the audience. So one thing that I struggle with personally is being 
entrepreneurial and being, you know, having sort of like professional ADD. I'm like, oh, I could do this. I could do this. I could do this. I could do this. So focus is really my particular issue because the new shiny thing is always like the most exciting thing for me. Um, so how do you guys keep from chasing little rabbits down, down holes as opposed to being like, this is my, you know, this is the elephant I'm hunting. I didn't. I didn't. If you look at the map of the work I've done over the last four years, you'd be like, damn, darn, because Sean had a hands in a lot of stuff. I've started projects that have stalled. I've gotten things that are trademarked that I have not produced. I mean, I literally was like, I am like a cat, a kitten chasing a ball all the time. Right. So the thing that has grounded me is to hire a team of folks who are implementers. So in my strengths, my top five strengths, I am futuristic. So I'm always looking at the next thing. I'm strategic. Mm -hmm. so I'm clear on that kind of stuff. But I'm also great at building relationships, finding the best in people, um, and setting that vision. All of those skills don't have anything to do with finishing a darn thing. Uh -huh. And so the first thing I had to do was stop seeing my inability to finish things as a failure. And I, gosh, I wish, you know, hindsight's 2020, but I really wish I had had that orientation when I was in my career because I think I would have really pushed differently for the support I needed or asked questions differently. So I think it's really critical if you are a starter and not a finisher mm -hmm. to understand for yourself what the genesis of that is. And mine is like you, Rhea. I, let me tell you, I love to chase. That's why I was I good. know. Like, ooh, 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 look at that new book, new down. <laughs> yeah. So now on my tip, I'm only hiring folks who are, who are ridiculously obsessed with implementation because mm -hmm. they have kept me grounded. And so mm. I have a company map out to 2022. Mm. Like, I mean, like the ideas are so ridiculous. Also, I'm just gonna give some of my ideas away because I can't do all this stuff and it just keeps coming to me. So yeah. as people are looking to like find their way in their own work and they're looking to find their way in their practice, and because I'm using that relator skill and that individualization skill I have, so I can see what people can do. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to get stuff away because I don't, I don't need it. Mm -hmm. So that has been really helpful to me. And mm -hmm. lastly, and then, you know, Brooke, I, I know that you are like, yes, I'm agreeing with you on that one. The thing that has been, I'm saving grace for me um, in the last year or so is to name when something is an experiment. So when I started Secret Lives of Leaders a few years ago, uh, I started out saying, I'm going to test this out real quick and see if I like it. Yes. This is going to be temporary, y'all. Could be here, could not be here. Prototyping, yes, yes, yes. Exactly. Yep. And, so, and it's taken some time for me to get myself around, like, what is the podcast I'm going to do? What does that really look like? What do I really want to achieve that my peers are not achieving or that will add to the space? If I would have just kept along that route, I would either would have stalled completely and felt like a failure um, or I would have kept along a route that wasn't for me, but saying this is an experiment has really helped me to be able to test new ideas and not feel like I can't commit to doing things. So those are my two things. I love it. So I'm going to build on something uh, that you, you referenced. So in, in my coaching, I, I talk a lot about the zone of genius. Mm. Uh, it is uh, a phrase I don't remember some time ago I, I came across and it really resonated with me. This idea that there are certain ways in which we function in the world that are just really right for us, right? There's a, a zone we can get into that is unique to us. It's a particular constellation of skills and passions. Um, and I think that particularly in a leadership space and in an entrepreneurship space, and I spent a lot of time with, with nonprofit and for-profit entrepreneurs, 
there, there's a particular zone of genius or type of zone of genius that we um, celebrate. And it looks like a certain thing. And it can be, you are a planner, you are a doer, you are an executor. Um, you know, you are a visionary up on a mountain with just the best ideas that nobody's ever come up with. There are all these things mm-hmm. that we talk about, these tropes in there. Um, I think the key, and, and I love that you talked about this, is to figure out, um, I, I'm very clear about what my zone of genius is. I always have been. I was blessed with that as a small child. <laughs> I, oh, know bless you. I, I know what I'm good at. I know what I love. I know where they intersect. Um, and I have crafted a life in every way possible to lift those things up. Um, it also sort of helps that I'm really bad at certain things that are outside of my zone of genius. Just if, I, if I'm not interested, I just sort of suck at it. So zeroing in on your zone of genius and then bringing people into your life that shore you up in that, that are the executors if you're the visionary is important. The second thing I'll add, um, I think I am also a shiny bubble person. I need to have a constellation of things in my life. Um, but alignment is very important. Yes. So, you know, my husband is the opposite of me. He has one thing, he is a deep, he goes deep. And so he looks at me and it seems scattered. Um, but I spend a lot of time making sure I'm clear about how the various stars in my constellation are aligned within some solar system. You know, there is a, a purpose that motivates me that is a through line through everything. And that alignment can be grounding so that if a new shiny bubble presents itself, is it in alignment with my purpose? Is it something that will actually help me move forward in being the person that I want to be and having the social impact that I want to have? Um, and that is something that for those of you who know me really well, I actually write down. I mean, every year I have a very structured strategic plan both in my personal life and with my professional life with goals and objectives um, so that I can think through how is everything that I want to accomplish this year aligned internally with one another Mm -hmm. and I go back to that plan. Um, And then the last thing that is tied to both the zone of genius and the alignment is I have accountability partners. Rhea is one of them actually. Um, I have for me mostly women in my life um, there are three or four. We talk and meet regularly. It is a standing meeting. We do not miss it. Well, sometimes I do, Rhea knows, um, but we try not to miss it. And, and I have been clear with them, please hold me accountable. If you see me chasing a shiny ball that doesn't seem like it's in alignment with what I've told you my purpose is, if you see me feeling bad or guilty about something that's outside of my, my inability to do something outside of my zone of genius, if you see me procrastinating, learning, right? If you keep hearing me talk about the web the webinars and the podcasts I'm listening to, and it's been four months, call me out and help me get back on track. And so that accountability partnership, mm-hmm. um, I started that when I was an executive director. It's one of the most powerful tools I've ever had. Um, they, these women are also friends and also they have agreed to sort of step into that role of, we will partner with you on keeping you on track. So those are the three things I would say, okay. zone of genius, alignment and accountability. So I'll just add two things before we throw it open to the audience. So Brooke and I were talking about this um, and I think <laughs> I'm going to quote someone else, but like I was feeling bad about something, about not getting something done. And it was like, I'm lazy, but actually, no, I'm just lazy about shit I don't care about. And we have this amazing world where you can hire people across the world very affordably to do stuff you don't want to do, right? And My so, lives in Eastern Europe. 
oh, my VA lives in Nigeria. We'll have a whole other conversation <laughs> about that. Uh, so I'm, yeah, I'm lazy about shit I don't want to do, but I can find people to do it. And then the second thing I'll just say on my own journey is like comparison truly is the thief of joy. Cause I would constantly oh. like beat myself and be like, how come I haven't like hit this goal or how come my website doesn't look like Kashana's or how come this, yeah. that, the other. And it was like, you know what? You, you got to stay in your lane, play your mm -hmm. own game. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm hearing lots of nods here. I love that Rhea. And the thing that you, you just, the last thing you just said is struck me. I remember when you, when you launched, you said, you texted me and was like, I'm launching my podcast. And I was like, get it girl. And now I'm like, I still haven't done this thing. And I'm like, you know, Kishana. Oh my God, Kishana, I literally just had that internal dialogue. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, dude, don't give up, you know? And so um, the other day- um, my accountability partners. Kishana, <laughs> <done> shit. <laughs> I was just like, I, I with it. I just haven't done it. But for me, it's because like, uh, as Inria knows about me, but like to get to know me is to know like my, one of my um, best friends is my brand um, creative director. And she teases me all the time because she's like, Kashana, your design aesthetic is, is maximalism. I didn't even know that was a word, y'all. But if you think about every part of my life, it, it, I do it to the max. Hello for these matching yeah. earrings. To the, like this, <laughs> and I have on a beanie at home, so my hair's not even done. Like, I just do it to the... To you do it big. You go big or you time. go home. Right. So what stops me from doing things certain times is it feels like perfectionism, but what it is is that if it doesn't hit the do it the, do it the most... <laughs> bar that makes me happy that I did a thing that I'm not going to do it. And so being okay with just having the craziest, best crew of professionals and friends and friend professionals who, who just do great stuff in the world. Mm -hmm. That is where I've started to center my joy because there are gonna be things I do really well that other folks who I know don't do as well. Mm -hmm. And there gonna be things that they do really well that I just get to cheer them on, promote the heck out of it and bring fire to it because that's not for me. Right. And that to me has been a turning point as well. So Rhea, I love that you lifted that up, that like comparison to people joy too, because it has been, it has been hard yeah. to not feel like you're doing the comparison game in secret. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I just outed myself out here. Um, here we I mean, the last thing I'll say, and I, I'll open it up to the group here, is um, the one thing that I have found to help move forward and get rid of inertia is just doing the one thing, right? Because like it's super overwhelming to be like, oh, I'm going to launch a podcast, or I'm going to launch a business, or I'm going to launch like write a book, and it's like, okay, but how about today I just write two sentences, or today I just think of a name for the podcast, or today I just think about the concept for my business, right? So it's it's like you're always moving forward, even if it just feels like a little thing, because a little thing is better than nothing. Because, you know, I can also just sit and stew in my head and get nothing done and watch Netflix instead. I'm going to ask Rachel to unmute herself. Rachel, you have a couple of questions, but um, why don't you pop in and ask one of them? Sure. Um, I guess I'm interested from the three of you giving some advice to an under 40 female uh, fundraising executive who's looking to sort of take the next step up. Um, what would one piece of advice be that you could give? I think from my perspective around um, being a female executive, like it has been a gift for me to understand the the power of being if you identify as being a woman and what 
for me that means is I grew up in a household where uh, my mom would talk about the fact that we are designed to incubate um, and not necessarily from a procreation standpoint, but literally that our beings are designed to birth things and to bring things to life. And so some of us don't bring babies to life in terms of like the ones that I got out there homeschooling, okay? Some of us bring ideas to life. Some of us raise up professionals. Um, and so being able to step so powerfully into that idea for me has released me from some of the frustrations I have had about being a female executive um, in an industry that is largely women, uh, uh, women run in terms of in the ranks, but male run in the executive suite, um, in the board suite. And so that I've, I've really been able to leverage that power for me, that, that balance um, has been important. And then I think the second thing is really understanding like what your strengths are. Brooke said it so succinctly. If you don't know what the zone of genius is, like we got to look that up. We got to get in it. If you don't know what yours is, you got to do the strengths finder. You got to dig into the, if you, if you are an Enneagram person, whatever your test is, go in, go deep, really, and then have that accountability partner. Brooke laid out the, the roadmap, essentially. Um, and for me, lastly, being able to surround myself with, um, I would say, the sort of like my concentric circles of people. So in my closest in kitchen advisory are folks who will, they put on Vaseline on their face, y'all, and go to war for me, okay? but they also will rip all my edges out. Um, and so they will tell me all the things, but also be my fiercest advocates. And then one out, folks who I have a personal relationship, but not in my private life. And so they will go to bat for me in those spaces. And then out one more to folks who are like my cheerleaders with their, in the stands out there. They don't know me that well, but they're like, whatever she's doing, I got it. And then one further out, those who are like, I think I know the people who know her, feels like a good idea. So being able to be really clear about who, how that works for me in my life has been really important in terms of um, building up not just my professional skills and ability to be a leader, but the personal foundational stuff that sometimes we need to undo depending on the way you were raised um, or really shore up depending on how you were raised in order to really to shine in, in your work. I, I cannot agree more. I think I'm only going to add one thing because everything you just said is perfect. Um, <laughs> and that in addition to the knowing yourself, the finding your strengths, you know, defining the scope of your um, zone of genius, I think clarity about, um, I don't want to sound too esoteric. I was going to say clarity about your purpose, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put on my Virgo hat and just be really like wonky and, and specific here. You have to know what you want to do next. Right. And so, um, and not just, I, you know, I want a job in the city or I want it to be in fundraising. What is your passion? What is the thing that when you look back in a year or two years or five years mm -hmm. will make you feel accomplished and like you have done something that you care about in your career? Do you want to run an organization? Do you want to do you like to manage teams? Do you like to build culture as part of your work? What is the thing that's exciting? Um, and in addition, and that should intersect with your strengths, right? So you've got to know who you are in the space and then um, 
what is the kind of work that is going to be really exciting? And I think one of the things about fundraising is we tend to talk about doing fundraising work as a monolith, right? That it looks the same in every space for all people. And you know that that's not true. And so what is it about being a fundraising executive that feels like the next, um, you know, the next best thing for you, the next exciting challenge for you. And that plus your strengths, I think will help you mm -hmm. figure out where you wanna go. And the important, the reason that that clarity is important is because, you know, if you know that if you're in New York and you know you're going to Boston, you're not gonna take roads that lead you to Seattle, right? So if you're clear about where you're trying to get to, um, even if maybe it feels like a reach, then as the universe presents opportunities to take you down that path, your, your mind is gonna see them. You're gonna see them more clearly because you know you're trying to get to Boston and you won't be as distracted by other things. You'll, you'll be able to call the right people and network with the right people, et cetera. So I would just add this sort of clarity about direction. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm just gonna add one last thing, double click on both those points is, um, I just, I hate like the idea of networking because it just, it feels so transactional and gross. And so the way that I really built my professional reputation is I wanted to be helpful to people. Um, and I really have grounded everything I do in a generosity of spirit. Like I'm not trying to think about how, how is this going to benefit me or how can I get ahead, but rather like, how can I be helpful to people? And it sort of comes back, you know, karma. Mm -hmm. Rhea, you're so right, because let me tell you what, when I looked up in 2016 and decided to go full force with Kashana and Co., what I realized is that um, I had been in a what's in it for me mode for a long time. You can be a warm, kind person and not be giving. Yeah. You true. can be giving, but be giving so that it can suit you. That's right. And it doesn't make you necessarily a bad person, because if you're, particularly if you are asleep at the wheel, and friends, I was asleep at the wheel, just, just doing. And so I realized I had you know, I, I say this quite a bit, um, a kiddie pool of relationships. And when I stopped and said, oh my gosh, how am I going to grow this thing when people know me, but they don't know me well, they wouldn't know what to recommend me for. I haven't done anything for anybody unless I needed something. Like it was just feeling like a mess. Yeah. And so I had to literally have me a couple with quite a number of folks like my bad. I didn't mean to do that. Mm -hmm. And how can we start again? And at first, I swung out a little bit too high on the pendulum in terms of wanting to help. And then I realized people will take advantage of that. <laughs> um, and so I had to swing the pendulum back a little bit and like, okay, Kashana, to what end? Mm -hmm. Like what is, and so when I started looking at my life in seasons, like, okay, in this season, what is gonna be most important for me to be able to accomplish personally and professionally? And then what are the things that would need to be true in order for me to your point, Brooke, to look back and feel really good about what I did. Mm -hmm. And so my dad gives us, gives a story as a kid all the time. So he grew up in New York. I grew up in New York city. He was a correction officer for pretty much my entire teenage into my early adult life, 20 years. And he never applied for the captain or the higher up ranks, even though he was a union boss and did all this stuff. Like, so he was like the man, right? And I always used to ask him why, because, you know, it comes with more money, it comes with all the things. And he said, because I just want to go home at night. When I leave work off my shift, I'm coming home to my family and I don't want to do anything else. And there are people who want to do more and there are people who do not. And so in his season of raising us, that's what was most important to him. So to your question, Rachel, and to others who are listening, when I talk about understanding what you need in your season of life right now it really means like in this frame of life that you're in what actually 
is driving you and what's really important, what responsibilities do you have? Because you might want to be a fundraising executive, but baby, you are on the chopping block every time your organization is at risk of not hitting gold. And maybe in the personal, in your personal life, you have responsibilities that you can't manage that level of risk right now. So being able to make those decisions fully and wholly, um, I think are really important. Oh, truth, truth. I mean, I would say mine are pretty particular to the sort of social, like entrepreneurial space right now. I go through, Mm -hmm. Tony mentioned seasons. Um, I go through seasons and I sort of have one or two things that I'm doing deep dive learning around. And actually I'll go back to one of the earlier questions about sort of staving off fear. When I was an executive director, I started doing um, this thing called a listening tour and I would pick two topics for you know, a six month period that I just really wanted to get better at. And I'd find five other executive directors that I just thought were kicking ass, um, whether I knew them or not. And most of the time I did not know them yet. And I would email them and say, you're really great at this thing. I would like to meet with you um, and ask some questions. And every single person said yes. And I would do four of those um, a quarter. Um, and, and I still do that. Right. And a lot of it is how you build this sort of these concentric circles. But so I, the, the idea of having these themes allows me to go deep. So I would say right now, um, I listen to, <laughs> there are um, a few people in the entrepreneurship space, a woman named Amy Porterfield, who I love, um, a woman named Brooke Castillo, who is actually a coach. Um, and talks a lot about that's where the procrastinate learning. Um, that's where I learned procrastinate learning. Um, I read the Stanford Social Innovation Review, um, which I just have loved for a decade. Um, they do really great, interesting work um, in the nonprofit space. Um, Art, I see you. What's the question? Well, so what is the thing that pushes you into doing something in, in, to fuel the social good where you could be doing something and making more money? Thank you, that's a great question. So. Social entrepreneurship, social good versus the almighty dollar. Ladies? So I actually um, have gotten this question quite a lot over the course of my career. Um, You know, oftentimes from cousins who were like, but wait, you went to Harvard Law and have a grad degree um, in public policy and you're doing what? (laughs) For how much money? So it is a question that I often get. I I can only speak for me, but I will say that um, I have never actually felt that my career was a series of choices um, where I chose to do something I could be doing for more money for less money. Um, Because doing the work that I love to do in many areas of the for-profit sector wasn't possible. I I couldn't build the nonprofit I wanted to build as a for-profit, it had to be a nonprofit. I couldn't do the mission-centered work that I wanted to do um, in the way that I wanted to do it, um, say at a law firm. I could do a version of it, I could do great pro bono work, et cetera, but I couldn't do the, the work I wanted to do. And I think one of the things that can be dangerous for particularly people earlier in their career in the nonprofit sector is the, is the, the idea that there's some mythical for-profit space that would pay you more to do exactly what you're doing. There are people in the nonprofit space that get paid a shit ton of money to do what they love to do. I think that the 
the key for me has always been when I wake up in the morning, and this goes back to something I said before, what is my purpose? What is the, the impact I want to have on the world? Um, I believe we are all here to make the world better than when we found it. And so my question has continually been, how do I do that in a way that is exciting and fulfilling to me? And then I seek out opportunities to do that. And I think that we have challenges in our sector. I think we are often underpaid, not compared to the for-profit sector, just compared to what the value of the work is. Um, And that is absolutely a battle that I have been fighting um, on a policy front and a personal front. Um, But I I think the question isn't, how have I chosen to sort of give up the mythical higher paycheck? There isn't a mythical higher paycheck. I'm paid um, in the spaces to do the things I love. As an example, a number of my consulting clients are for-profit companies. One of my best and longest clients is Time Warner Media. Um, I work with a lot of small businesses um, and um, because they want to have a social footprint, they want to have a social impact in the world. And that's what I love to do is figure out how entrepreneurs can have a social impact. So that's a space where I get to, it's not even about being in the nonprofit space or the for-profit space. I am doing the work I'm called to do and there's a market for it um, in the for-profit world. So I think it's, what do we love to do and where's the market for it? And sometimes that might take us between sectors or out of sectors. Um, that's how I would I would think about it. I'm interested in, in what you guys think, Rhea and Tashana. Tashana, any additional yeah. thoughts? I, I want to get to one more question too. So yeah. if we for a long time, I felt like I wanted to get out, and I was always like I couldn't get a. I, I started investment banking. Um, I didn't love investment banking as much. Um, sometimes I'm always like, was that a right? Was that the right idea? Because of the friends I have who are now like partners and in whatever investment banking firm they're in, so that was a struggle. But I plus one on everything Brooke said, like, you know, our sector as a whole somehow has found its way to not valuing depending on what part of the sector you work in, because there are some lines of business that make a lot of money, some do not. Um, overvaluing folks who come from the for-profit sector to uh, the social sector. When overwhelmingly the people that I have met and worked alongside over the years, got more degrees, certifications, training in the trenches experience and so forth and so on and so forth um and can run rings around some of their counterparts who are doing similar work um in a different uh corporate entity and so for me my choice was um how do i do the life's work i want to do with the family that i wanted to raise and when i started in my career that was a driving force for me and then the second thing was like, and then what can I do that's going to make me feel alive at work? And I loved working in nonprofit organizations. I got a service learning scholarship to college. So community service has been a huge part of my life, but I didn't want to be on the program side. And I was like, well, I love money and I love people. Are they have this thing called fundraising? Let me see what that's about. And I started as a grant writer. So I'm a great writer. I did not love grant writing. So I moved into something that was much more relational and really spoke to my creative spirit, which was on the branding marketing side and then fundraising. So I think everybody's just sort of like finds their way in the way they find it, but it is not to the exclusion of being in a corporate space or another. And when I hear my friends who are like, I think I want to rest and I'm going to come work in a nonprofit and I start laughing, what you're not looking for is rest. No, because you have three jobs all of a sudden, if you're lucky, right? If you're lucky. Um, all right, last question for with Kritzia. She has a question. You want to unmute yourself, my friend, and this will be the last one that we have time for. 
Yeah. So um, I've been, I'm, I'm part of, I'm a woman in tech, minority woman in tech. So if anyone's aware of that, that's kind of a place that's really hard to be in. And recently I graduated from grad school. So on the, on the side, I really want to build um, oh, a site for women in tech, women of color in tech. And that's really my biggest dream. The hardest part of that was I was at work, I was in grad school and home life. It's really hard for me to do one more thing and build this community to be able to fundraise. So I was just curious to know, how did you all find the momentum to fund your dreams, right? Like your, your businesses, your ideas, or how did you get to a point that, oh, I feel, I feel like this is it, this is what I'm going to do. And I was able to convince a community or people to actually fund that dream. Okay, I'm gonna jump in here. Cause Kritzia, I wanna disaggregate two things that you said. You said, how do I build my site in order to fundraise? And I think those are two different things. The truth is you can just build your site and then start to socialize it with your community, move it on to friends, friends will move it on to friends if it is actually something worthwhile. And then I think you start to talk about the fundraising piece. And so it sounds like to me, you're letting this idea of how am I going to fundraise it stop you from actually taking that first step of like, how do I just start the site? Like I can make a site for you in half an hour on Squarespace. Like that's not the thing that's stopping you. I think the thing that's stopping you is this idea of having to build it into like this like big fundraising behemoth. Oh, I was going to say, I just, I really love the question. Um, it is absolutely one that I grappled with, um, particularly when I started my organization. I think every entrepreneur grapples with that. I will say two things. One, um, I, and I feel this way about sort of preparing to have children. You're never going to be ready. Um, there isn't going to be a day where you wake up and you're like, I have enough money. I have enough security. Enough people have shown that they are excited and I feel safe. Um, inherent in starting something new is there will always be this little, this modicum of, of, of insecurity and unsafety. Um, even people with million dollar companies feel the sense of like, okay, I'm putting something out there. I'm putting something out there. Let's, let's hope there's a bit of faith there. So, and I know that sounds cliche, but there isn't a magical day coming. Um, and so that leads to the second thing that I was going to say is part of what pushed me, part of what got me, um, and the universe started sending me signals. I, I, I will share a different story on a different day because it's a long story, but I, I started realizing that I was trying, I wanted to start this organization and I wasn't leaving my job and I was going crazy. And, and a couple of things happened. To, I walked to work in boots that didn't match. Like things were just falling apart. And what I realized was I just had to pick a lane. I had to decide that I was going to leap. Just decide, it was that simple, just decide. And then once that happened, I wasn't deciding, and now I'm gonna build this million, multi-million dollar organization. Cause that, like you said, that's too overwhelming. I decided I was gonna do what Rhea said. I was, decided I was gonna take the first step. And it took a few months and I mapped out what that first step looked like, how much money would I need so that I had health insurance and I could pay my mortgage. And that was my first step. I, I just decided and I, I took a leap. And once you do that, 
And that doesn't mean you have to leave your job. And it means that you are deciding to take that next step. Once you do that, the universe starts to orient itself in a way that will support you in doing that. You start to see opportunities. You, that last thought you have before you go to bed is, oh, right, I can email this, this site, the, you know, the wireframes for the site to this other person. And, oh, I forgot about that. Like in deciding you, you shape the universe to support your decision. I really believe that. And that has always been true for me. And so I think, you know, letting go of the one day I'll feel safe and secure enough to do it and, and deciding um, and putting the full force of your passion behind it, which doesn't mean quitting everything and jumping off a cliff. It means taking the step. I think. Thanks Brooke. That really gave me goosebumps. Oh, (laughs) one more thing. Yeah. You've got the last word here. Yeah, no. And one more thing is that you ain't got to start it yourself. Okay. Friends. So the, Chrissy, the idea you said there are, I just got in my head, just rattled off internally, like 10 women in tech groups of varying sizes and purposes. And so if you're all feeling overwhelmed in your life right now, join one. Get involved. Yeah. <laughs> I am part of one. And Good. I even had like one idea of collaborating with one of yeah. the organizers. That's a great idea. Uh, yep. But you know. <laughs> You can only do so much in a day, I guess. Decide literally means to put death to other options. Yeah, decide. Yeah, fratricide, homicide. The side is death. Ah, To decide means to put to death all other options. You just have to decide. So I I think the thing with our creative spirit, you know, is just you have to figure out how you harness your energy. And so most of the work that we have to do in being able to move forward is actually to focus on ourselves. And the scariest thing to do sometimes is to focus on ourselves. Also, can I just say, I said it was one last thing. I'm going to have the last word though. When people say they don't have the time, it's usually never about the time. It's about the emotional commitment, because if it's something you truly want to do and pour your heart into and are brave enough to do, you will find the time to do it. That's it. It's never about the time. Thank you all. Thanks, Rhea. All right, ladies, some of the gentlemen, thank you so much. We are out of time. This was so fun. I'm actually going to do a little poll here for y'all. Kashana, Brooke, thank you so much to both of you. Brooke, you are a joy. We are on that hustle bus. Yes, come on, join on the hustle bus. Not the struggle bus, y'all, the hustle bus. I love that. Awesome. Thanks so much for having us, Rhea. Great conversation. Thank you so much, everyone. Take care. Have a good weekend.